Welcome to the Annie E. Casey Foundation Podcast, a monthly conversation focusing on how all of us can work together to build a brighter future for kids, families, and communities. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation. I'm delighted to be your host, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation today. The Casey Foundation is focused on giving kids what they need, strong families, vibrant communities, and financial stability. In these efforts, the Foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who develop, test, and implement solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts right here on the Casey Foundation Podcast. State governments establish and enforce many of the policies that directly affect the well-being of children and families. This is particularly true for the millions of children, many of them children of color, who are living in low-income families and in under-resourced communities, where opportunities for healthy growth and development are often out of reach. Today's guest will offer us an important insight into policymaking at the state level and how it can improve the lives of children and families. Representative Stacey Abrams was first elected to the Georgia House of Representatives in 2006 to represent the 89th House District, which includes East Atlanta and surrounding communities. In 2010, she became the House Minority Leader for the Georgia General Assembly. As a graduate of Yale Law School, Representative Abrams is the first woman to lead either party in the assembly and is the first African-American to lead in the House of Representatives. In her role, she has led the caucus to promote and pass legislation to increase educational opportunity, promote economic security, and improve the quality of life for all Georgians. More recently, Georgia's Governor Nathan Deal appointed Representative Abrams to the state's Criminal Justice Reform Commission. We're delighted to have her here today. Welcome, Representative Abrams. Thank you so much for having me. So as a state legislator, what is your role in helping to improve the outcomes for children and families? I think that's the fundamental responsibility that we all have as legislators. We are entrusted with supporting and improving the lives of our citizens and the most vulnerable among us deserve the highest level of protection. And that certainly would be our children and their families. Uh, To that end, that means passing budgets that support human services, that guarantee a strong education. It's being certain that we do not put impediments in their way, uh, that we recognize that children are developing humans And so we have to be certain that our criminal justice system is reflective of the developmental challenges that face children. Uh, We have to support their families, recognizing that a living wage, that health care, that economic development are all part of how you create and sustain a vibrant community. And so I think as a legislator, it's our responsibility to think broadly about policies that support these but also to be strong advocates against legislation that would create harm or would impede their progress. 
So at the Casey Foundation, we've invested for more than 25 years in Kids Count, which is a network of child advocates and data experts in each state that help to inform legislators just like you about the needs of kids and families. As a legislator, how do you go about finding uh, information out, data about the problems you're addressing or effective solutions? And not just because I'm talking to you, but I will tell you that I am a huge proponent of Kids Count. Uh, that data provides two pieces of, of vital information. First, it takes the narrative out of anecdote and into empiricism. Uh, being able to demonstrate in terms of fact, here are the challenges that face these families, here are the issues that confront our children, and here's where we rank. Uh, and that leads to the second part, which is too often we console ourselves that everyone has a problem, that every state faces these challenges, and the beauty of Kids Count and the effectiveness of Kids Count data and other uh, resources is that it shows us what we could become, that we are not uh, we are not immune to improvement, that we can do better. And so I think the data points help us understand where we are, but it also serves as a lodestar to show us where we could move. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you so much for using uh, Kids Count. That really means a, a lot to us. Um, we know that in uh, your role as a, a legislative leader, um, you have to uh, help the, uh, the body face so many complicated issues. Um, how would you suggest advocates work to make children and family issues a legislative priority? As legislators, we are trained to think about issues in terms of our own experiences. And so my, my major admonition to advocates is to meet legislators where they are, not where you would like them to be. And by that, I mean, advocates come in with an incredible zeal and passion about the issues they're, they're speaking about, but there is a presumption that people understand the concerns, that they understand or have experience with the issue. Uh, and I think that that's always dangerous because if a legislator doesn't have a beginning point. It, they can't feel it in a visceral way. If they don't understand why it matters, they're not going to give it the attention it deserves. Uh, for example, this year, uh, in 2015, I led a study committee looking at the issue of kinship care. And I have very personal experience with kinship care because of my, my parents uh, having adopted my niece. But instead of using that as the advocacy point, I actually spent more time talking to my colleagues on the committee about their personal experience by giving them a space to understand it in the context of their own experiences, of their own grandmother raising a grandchild, of a niece or nephew taken in by an aunt or an uncle, of a family friend who's had a child living with, with him for 15 years. By personalizing it to start and then moving into the policy is a much stronger opportunity to engage legislators. I, I would say the second part of that is you meet people where they are, and then you tell them why it matters. Uh, too often, advocates will come in and say, here's the problem and here's the solution. But if you don't do that interstitial piece, that piece that says, here's why it's a problem, here's why it matters, here's why action is necessary, then there is no urgency for change. The data that comes from work that kids count does, the, the, the information that advocates can bring to the table has to be contextualized in terms of why it should matter to me. Why as a legislator should I make this a priority given all the other things that are facing? 
that's wonderful advice. Thank you. And you mentioned a priority that you've pursued around strengthening families through kinship care. Could you talk about um, why you believe that issue is so important uh, to help uh, low-income kids and families and uh, what you think we can do to strengthen it? Certainly. Kinship care, just for your listeners who, who may not know much about it, is when non-custodial families raise children. And so it's most often a grandmother raising a grandchild, but it can be a grandfather, it can be aunts and uncles, it can be family friends, uh, who we call fictive kin. Uh, it's when a child is taken in by another family. And the most important part of kinship care is that it tends to happen before you are involved with the uh, foster care system. That's critical because once a child's in the foster care system, the likelihood of dropout rates of behavioral problems go up and the likelihood of long-term success brought dramatic. When children are kept in a family that they know, their likelihood of success increases. And particularly among low-income children, this is a critical phase because it means they're not being displaced simply because they've had change in their family. Often, if they're placed in foster care, they lose the entire support system that they have. Kinship care preserves that family network, it preserves that community support base, and it guarantees to a much higher degree that these children will have lasting positive outcomes. The challenge, though, is that the more frequent kinship care becomes in our communities, the less likely it is that the resources are getting to those families. In Georgia in specific, we worked very hard this year to increase, uh, to start the administrative support, so making certain that these new parents uh, who thought they were done raising children, that they know about the resources that are available. They understand that they can access Medicaid for those children, that they can access food stamps, uh, particularly for elderly grandparents who are taking in children or on Social Security. You may have planned perfectly for your retirement, but you didn't plan for a five-year-old. And so being able to access the resources to which you are entitled, because that child is entitled to those resources, uh, this is an issue that's not only endemic to Georgia, it's facing states across the country, and it is most prevalent among low-income communities because of drug use, because of poverty, and because of prison. I mentioned in your introduction that you have been serving on the state's Criminal Justice Reform Commission, and you just mentioned the criminal justice system. What are some of the priorities you have in coming out of this work? I want to give great credit to Governor Nathan Deal, who has spearheaded criminal justice reform and has made this a centerpiece of his administration since 2011. I've been privileged to work with him on a number of changes that have been made, including making reentry easier for ex-offenders, reducing sentencing on nonviolent offenders, reducing sentencing and really fundamentally restructuring how we treat juvenile offenders, which is critical because if a child is treated as an adult criminal, you are simply creating an adult criminal. But if a child is treated as a child who's made a mistake, the likelihood of rehabilitation is substantially greater and it's economically better. Most recently, I worked very closely with the governor's office to add a provision that will allow ex-offenders to apply for jobs through licensure. In, in Georgia, we have some of the strictest licensing responsibilities and so you can't become a barber without a license. If you're an ex-offender, if you're a felon, you can't get a barber's license. And so what we have are people who are in prison who are being trained to come out and get jobs that they, by law, are not allowed to even apply for. 
and luckily working with the governor, we were able to reduce restrictions placed on those licenses. I'm also pleased that this year uh, criminal justice reform included for the first time allowing ex-offenders to qualify for food stamps. Uh, if you're an ex-offender who goes back into a community, if you're trying to reunite with your family, if you're trying to reunite with your children, if you cannot access food stamps, which often is a building block of being able to stabilize your community and stabilize your, your home life, then you are more likely to reoffend. And so this, I think, goes beyond simply helping criminal justice reform. And it's really about how do you help stabilize families that are trying to get past one of the most traumatic experiences imaginable. We often read that politics are becoming more partisan and that that can often hinder results. Where do you see opportunities for both sides of the aisle to work together on children's issues? I'm smiling uh, right now because my job is to be the minority leader. Uh, By definition, I do not have a sufficient number of votes in my caucus to win a single battle. And so I approach my job and I approach my role as a, a lawmaker with the understanding that my first responsibility is collaboration. It is my job to work with the majority to reach positive ends. Because Georgians do not care about whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican. They care about what will I do to help improve their lives. Uh, so my first job is to collaborate. It's to work with Governor Deal where we can to improve kinship care, to improve criminal justice reform. But when that doesn't work, the competition part is necessary. And so my second job is to compete But even that competition can be respectful. Partisanship should not give you an excuse for boorish behavior. It is not an excuse for becoming ideologically driven at the expense of practical and pragmatic choices. And so even when I'm competitive with the majority party, I try to do so in a way that's respectful of their philosophy, but also recognizes that in this instance, I think the approach we are advocating is the right one and creating a space for them to join me. You always want to make it possible for people to think that you're right without having to say it out loud. And I think the third responsibility is accountability. Part of the reason that it's okay to be hyper-partisan is that everyone is blamed for it. So it's a pox on both our houses. But if you hold yourself out and say, I should be held accountable, not only for who I fight with, but how well I play well with others, when I hold that as my standard, and I'm asking the people I ask to elect me to hold me accountable, and that makes me behave better. I can't take credit for being a you know, bomb thrower if I've told people that I'm not going to do that. And so you know, I think it's, it's collaboration, it's respectful competition, but overall it's accountability. And are you seeing any particular policy areas that seem promising on children's issues where uh, both parties can collaborate? Absolutely. I've spent the last 10 years in the legislature trying to implement this in the last six years as leader uh, doing so. We have been very successful, as I said, on kinship care. Uh, That could not have passed without bipartisan support. And so while I was the first signer on the bill, the second signer was a Republican. Uh, Working closely with Governor Deal on criminal justice reform, which is an ongoing issue, uh, and it's going to take years to resolve all of the damage done through Georgia's two-strikes-you're-out approach to law enforcement. We have also been able to do, I think, really important work for military families. Uh, This year, we were able to make changes so that children who are special needs children who receive Medicaid in other states, when they come to Georgia, they now, for the first time, will also qualify for Medicaid. And that means that those special needs children are not 
disqualified from support simply because of the state that they're in. Uh, I think there are opportunities for Medicaid expansion, uh, and that will not come about without joint uh, work from Democrats and Republicans. Right now, it's a little harder to get Republicans to agree, but I think we can do it uh, because Medicaid expansion will change the lives of 478,000 Georgians. And that means you're not just changing the lives of adults, you're changing the lives of the children that they touch. And I think that that is, again, a bipartisan opportunity because you're supporting rural communities, you're supporting poor families, you're supporting working families if we can get this done. And, and so my responsibility is to constantly look at what are the educational opportunities, what are the economic security opportunities that we can pursue, and how do we make a shared responsibility for change the belief of both parties. That's wonderful to hear. You know, we know the outcomes for children of color are often lower than their white peers. Do legislators look at issues of racial equity when they are making decisions about funding and programs? Unfortunately, too often the conversation about race is used as an excuse not to act. I was recently having lunch with a couple of friends and we were talking about the conversations of poverty that are too often racialized into non-existence. Uh, the, the point being that because it is happening to a black family or a brown family, that there is lesser responsibility. And I would argue that it's exactly the inverse, that when you can support those families that are the most likely to be harmed, that are the most vulnerable, that when you create a system that is supportive and that recognizes the inequities that come with race, that you're creating a system that then supports everyone. And most often, particularly in the South, it's not necessarily children of color who are the largest population. They are the most likely to be in that population, meaning by race, the likelihood of them falling into one of the pathologies that we're concerned about is higher. But as an aggregate number, it's most often white children who are the majority of the children in poverty. But when we focus on racial inequity, when we focus on thinking about how do you serve a Latina child in Southwest Georgia who is isolated, when you solve that problem, then you've solved the problem of then how do you support rural children everywhere? Because the most difficult cases, the solution to the most difficult problems often lead to the best responses for everyone. Well, as the demographics in our country continue to change and we have growing numbers of children of color, um, we certainly know that will be an issue that legislators have to take up. And you mentioned outcomes for children in the South. The Casey Foundation will release its 2016 Kids Count data book this summer. And each year we find that children in the South and the Southwest are falling behind kids in the rest of the country. As a legislator in Georgia, what do you think can be done to help improve outcomes for kids in the South as a whole? We have to invest in those children. It's as simple and as complicated as that. Unfortunately, we are penny-wise and pound-foolish as legislators. Uh, we spend a great deal of time and effort focusing on stealing jobs from one state to bring to another. I, I have a particular disposition against too often the, the economic development idea that I'm just going to take someone else's job because you're creating unemployment somewhere else when you do so. But point being that when that is your focus, Instead of how do we grow opportunities at home, how do we grow capacity at home, we make poor financial choices. And the same thing is true in our investment in our children. 
Right now in Georgia, more than 56% of our public school children are children of color, and they are also the most likely to be impoverished. What that means is that when they are 18 years old, when they are entering the workforce, they are also the most likely to be ill-equipped to take the jobs that we're trying to bring to the state. If we're not thinking today about the economic impact of undereducated, poorly resourced, medically fragile children, then we are making not only poor moral choices, we're making poor economic choices. Uh, it is the responsibility of the state to produce a strong and vital workforce. And we are not doing that when we ignore at our peril the changing demographics and the explicit needs of children of color. Because in the South in particular and the Southwest, they are most likely going to be the core of our workforce for the next generation. Representative Abrams, thank you so much for that powerful statement about why we need to make sure our young people today are prepared for the future. Thank you for your work in the legislature, and thank you so much for what you do for children and for Georgians. Well, I am honored to be on this podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and thank you for what you do. We can't do our work without knowing what our work is about, and the data and the support provided by the Annie Casey Foundation is transformative and I'm deeply appreciative for everything you do. Representative Abrams, thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our podcast on iTunes to help others find us. To learn more about our podcast and for show notes, visit our website, aecf.org, and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.